Hello and welcome to the Arms Control Poser Podcast. My name is William Albert, Director of Strategy, Technology and Arms Control at the International Institute for Strategic Studies in Berlin. I will be your host as we explore the world of arms control. On each podcast, I will interview the great and the good of the arms control community about a current event related to a treaty or agreement, past, present, or only proposed. Then together, we will go, hopefully, deep enough on the history and functioning of the agreement to help you make sense of it all. And, well, that's the idea anyway. This podcast is funded by the European Union Non-Proliferation and Disarmament Consortium. Now let's get underway. All right, and welcome to the podcast. Today, I am honored to have Mike Albertson. He is a former state and Department of Defense official, an arms control expert, and a negotiator on the New START Treaty way back when. Mike, thank you for being here today. Thank you, William. Great great to be here. All right. So what is the security topic that you want to address today? What's the big issue that we're going to get into? I think it's the New START Treaty. I mean, it means it means so much for so many people. I think we have to talk about it. Right. Yeah. And I, I would like to talk not just about New START, but about the whole U.S.-Russia bilateral arms control strategic issue, China, uh, nuclear weapons control more broadly. Um, all of it, if we can. can. Do you think we can get to all of that? Sounds great. I'm ready for it. All right, great. So first off, um, how did we get here? So so where are we right now in terms of New START? Uh, what's happening uh, currently? So I think there are you know three stories to tell here, depending on how, how much you want to get into the weeds on New START. I think there's a broader U.S.-Russia story. I think there's the story of sort of any arms control agreement since time immemorial. And then I think there's a more specific new start story. I mean, we got here in one sense because of the overall decline in the U.S.-Russian bilateral relationship. Since we signed the treaty, since the treaty entered into force, you think of all the things that have happened over the last decade plus in the relationship, you know, Putin returning to power, two Russian invasions of Ukraine, sanctions, violations of the Intermediate Range Nuclear Forces Treaty, INF Treaty, um, the Russian the Russian list of grievances that they repeat all the time. You know, there have been a lot of problems that, you know, for the most part, New START was one of these things that was, was still working. And the challenge is when most of the things in the bilateral relationship don't work, um, it's the things that do work that sort of stick out. Right. And I remember, um, actually, a, a colleague of ours, Hannah Note, um, wrote a, online about how compartmentalization has failed. That basically the idea that we could keep new start bilateral arms control negotiations between the US and Russia outside of other events has collapsed, uh, mainly because Russia refuses to do so. Russia uh, is now linking everything together and trying to force the US to change its behavior regarding support for Ukraine in order to keep implementing the treaty. So now we appear to be on a trajectory out of the treaty. Is that right? That's right. Um, yeah, I mean, the, the the story within the treaty, I think, is, you know, New START was never easy. There's this perception that New START was an easy treaty. Um, it, it was never easy. Arms control treaties are never easy. How long was that? It wasn't easy to negotiate. Yeah, how long was the negotiation for New START? Negotiation for New START was... I mean, eight or nine months, all told. I mean, negotiations really got kicked off in September of, of 2009. They, they concluded, you know, April um, 2010. So, so very, very short um, and rose 
Gottemiller's book on the, on the topic is sort of an excellent summation of the pressures that the treaty faced to sort of move, move fast. Start one was expiring. We needed to get this done. Everyone perceived it would be very easy and it was difficult. And the negotiating team faced a lot of time pressures to get it done. And you were part of that team. And I was, I was part of that team. Um, I was part of that team. I was in Geneva for the second half of the negotiations. So January, January through April when the treaty was concluded. Um, and then I went back uh, to the Pentagon and worked with the senior DOD official, Dr. Ted Warner, to do the ratification and then the initial implementation of the agreement. Right. And when you negotiated it, did you think that it was going to go through to uh, the end and the renewal period? Um, or did you think it would be replaced by an upgraded agreement before it would expire? What was What was your vision when you were on the team? You sit there and you have such this sort of spirit of the negotiations that you've gotten something done that you can't even envision, you know, there being an issue, you know, with with renewing the treaty or extending the treaty. And and so that was that was sort of far down the path of anyone's minds. And for a lot of people, this was the culmination of their careers. And so they would do this and it would stay in place and it would you know last forever. I think there was also this sense, you know, in 2010 that there was momentum, you know, that that President Obama wanted to do things, that President Medvedev wanted to do things, that this was the first step in getting a lot of arms control things done, which of course proved sort of not to be the case. Right, because the follow-up from the Obama administration, so so first there was the Prague speech, but then there was the Berlin speech, which was a further offer for reductions. And that was um, rejected uh, out of hand, if I remember, by the Russians. It was something like an additional 30% or something like that reduction in strategic arms. Yeah, it was a, it was a one-third cut. Um, and you know, let's let's do something to include all warheads, essentially. Right, right. Now, uh, for you personally, you know, uh, being part of such an important moment, uh, an important treaty, uh, great success. Did you start to think at some point about the next about follow-on? Did you think about China? Did you think about what nuclear arms control? with, for instance, all nuclear weapons, non-strategic nuclear weapons would look like with the Russians? Was, was this something that you started to think of after ratification or had you moved on to other tasks? What, what, what was your, how did you interact after the treaty was completed and ratified? How did you work on the next steps? Well, it's funny because you don't realize it 27 or 28, that this is going to be a major event in your career. You, you, you know, having no arms control negotiating experience really prior to that, it, I, you didn't think that was going to be the, the meal ticket on which you dined out for the, for the foreseeable future. Um, I mean, my, my world as I knew it was sort of start one and then new start. So to me, the new start treaty was sort of adequate for what needed to be covered. Um, it, you know, it, did strategic forces, it counted things, it was going to include these new Russian systems that are part of their modernization program. I saw that as perfectly adequate for what the United States wanted to do. The challenge then became when people surfaced, why doesn't arms control do all of these other things that we think it should do? Um, and that has led, I think, to a lot of thinking in the expert community. And I've been doing a lot of thinking of well, if you want arms control to do other things, what can arms control do and what do you want it to do um, with China, with other Russian warheads, with, you know, Russian novel systems? And so, I mean, go ahead, answer that question. What would, what would you like to, what would you like arms control to do regarding Chinese nuclear weapons? No, I mean, that, 
That is it. That is the tough question. And that and that is the question that so many people have trouble answering. Of, you know, it is it is not fair that China is not in an arms control agreement. They should be in an arms control agreement. And then the question becomes, tell me, tell me how you want me to build this house for you. Tell me how you want me to get China into an arms control agreement. Um, and and then sort of the conversation stops. Right. There are a lot of false leads you can go down when you think about China. Um, you want to bring them into an agreement with the Russians. They're not going to accept a lower numerical cap, right? right. The Chinese aren't going to accept sort of second place status in an arms control agreement. If you give them the same cap that you and the Russians have in an arms control agreement, everyone will accuse you that you sort of forced the Chinese to build up or you allowed the Chinese to build up under this agreement. Right. And of course, now you have all of these problems with you know, the two peer environment and the close partnership between Russia and China and what does it mean and what should U.S. numbers be? And so the easiest question to me with, you know, what what should China arms control look like is in, in one word sort of simpler. Hmm. Um, you can't have China in an arms control agreement with you and the Russians. And it's more complex, more intrusive. You know, the Chinese haven't done what we and the Russians, we and the Soviets have done for the last five decades. So it should be simpler. And what is what does simpler mean? It means maybe you have a treaty that doesn't have numerical caps. Hmm. Um, it means maybe you have a treaty that has, you know, less onerous inspections, less onerous notifications, less onerous data exchanges. Really what you want from any agreement with the Chinese is what are, what are you doing? What are the Chinese doing? What do they have? Right. Where are they going? Right. Can, can we get to the table and talk to them? Make me an agreement that does that. I think you get 90% of what you want with the Chinese. Right. So if they were to give us full transparency, you know, well, oh, full transparency, if they were to give us a nuclear order of battle, how many warheads they had, how many delivery systems of what types, um, something like, uh, I guess, what we have under the CFE treaty where they, you know, gave you a structure and and where they wanted to go in terms of a ceiling, then you could you might be able to negotiate something. Is that right? I think so. I mean, I, I understand the Chinese, you know, reticence on transparency, their sort of dislike of US Soviet, US Russian style arms control, but the Chinese also have a lot of complaints about what the US is doing. The Chinese seem to have a lot of things that they, you know, are concerned about. Um, I think in agreement with the Chinese, it's sort of, we're not asking for much. Um, we're, we are simply sort of recognizing your, your nuclear status. And this is what we think recognizing your nuclear status means in terms of, you know, some sort of dialogue and some sort of agreement. You know, uh, the other, so, so we have a world where right now China has absolutely no limit whatsoever. Uh, we know that there are hundreds of new silos being built, um, really much more highly capable submarine launch ballistic missiles, heavy bombers capable of delivering nuclear warheads. So it looks like they're building a triad. It looks like it's going to be large. I think the last DIA estimate I saw was 1,200 warheads. But then we also have news. China um, is working with the Russians to build and fuel a plutonium breeder reactor, a fast reactor cycle, um, possibility for reprocessing as well. So they can jumpstart plutonium production and go to a lot of warheads relatively quickly. So having some kind of cap would be a good thing. 
Um, but what would you say about verifi verifiability? What would you say about verification? Uh, do you think there would be um, the possibility for some kind of inspections at Chinese nuclear facilities? No, that's a good that's a good question. I think really what you want an arms control agreement to do is sort of remove the the worst case scenarios that result from unknowns. And like you mentioned, the the great unknown with the Chinese is sort of where where are they going? And when the U.S. doesn't know where the Chinese are going, people make assumptions about where they're going and people are going to start to take concrete steps to try and get ahead of where the Chinese are going or meet the Chinese where they think they're going. The question about verification, and I think this is the question that the expert community has to explore, is, you know, you look at the entire sort of Chinese life cycle, their, their nuclear complex, and if you only had sort of one shot at doing inspection somewhere to give you the greatest confidence in terms of what they have and what they're doing, where would that be? Right. Um, is that something related to their fissile material production? Is that related to, you know, visiting operational units? Is that related to a warhead storage site? Is sort of, yeah. If you had sort of one bullet to choose with inspections, because the Chinese are not going to give you inspections everywhere, um, where is that one bullet you want to use? Um, and that to me is a question for people sort of much more familiar with the Chinese nuclear nuclear complex than, than I. Sure, but I mean, it's still a system, right? And so if you draw out a system for, from soup to nuts, from, you know, um, mining of uranium all the way to deploying nuclear warheads in the, in the field, you know, what choke points would you hit? I mean, in theory, if you had one shot, it would be to verify that you knew how many warhead fabrication plants there were, right? So if you thought there were a dozen and you only knew about two, you'd want to go to a couple sites using your... And this gets back to something that I had talked about in previous podcasts about the definition of arms control. You know, you, you have an intelligence picture of what the other side has, and then you get into an agreement where they have to declare things. And then if they don't declare something that you see in your intelligence assessment, you can go there and say, hey, <laughs> Is this a mistake, or are you hiding stuff? And if they're hiding stuff, then you know you know you're in, in trouble. Um, do you think warhead fabrication plants would be the right choke point, or is it further along the line? Is it is it involving delivery systems? Is it deployment sites? Like where would you go if yeah, you had one shot? This is this is one of those great questions about what is a what does a warhead verification regime look like? And there's there's lots of different ways you can construct one, and they can be very elaborate, very intrusive, very technologically dependent, and they can also be kind of easy. They can be very in sort of information database um, um, focused. I mean, to me, I, I would I would go to warhead storage sites. Okay. Um, you know, I, I think there is is some mechanism by which you exchange data of when warheads leave a production facility or a fabrication facility and go out in the field. And then you, you know, you go out to the storage sites and you essentially count things that they declare to be nuclear. Um, you can go much more deeply into levels of, of intrusiveness. But I mean, to me, sort of anything related to warheads is, is much greater than what we have now. I mean, being able to go to a nuclear warhead storage site is far more than we get to do now. So people who are sort of letting the optimal be the enemy of the acceptable, I think, in this case, is, is, is always a problem. No, I think that's such a good point, too. It's like at this point... If China were to declare that it was not going to make any more weapons usable nuclear material, for instance, it's the only member of the P5 who does not even have self-restraint 
on making new plutonium or highly enriched uranium. Uh, you know, the French, the UK, the US, and the Russians have all declared a cessation of manufacturing of, of fissile material. China doesn't. Even that would be cool. And even if they gave us a top number of warheads, that would be amazing. But yeah, I always try to, here I am getting ahead of myself and being like, yeah, 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 but how would you verify it? It's like, well, you know, we have to remember, even with the US and the Soviets, we had baby steps first. Yeah, I think I think people people forget these things and they expect the Chinese to sort of jump 50 years in the future from all of the baby steps that the US and the Soviets had to take. And this this idea that what the US and Soviets did was really, really strange at the time, right? And there were, you know, significant bureaucratic opposition inside the US government, the Soviet government to what, to what we were doing. You know, you're letting people see these things, you're letting people go to these places, they're going to see all of our secrets, and they're going to know everything, and we're going to be worse off. I mean, I, I was lucky that by the time I started really getting into sort of arms control, when I started my career, it was so routinized by that point that that nobody saw this as sort of weird or strange. It was you were on an assembly line, essentially, from when the inspection started to when the inspection ended. And these were groups of people in the, in, you know, the Russian Nuclear Risk Reduction Center and the U.S. Defense Threat Reduction Agency, who'd, who'd known each other for years and, and were able to work things out on the ground and the timetables and schedules. And can I see that? And no, you can't, but you can see this. And I mean, it was an it's an interesting process. And so the the thinking that you're just going to drop the Chinese into the middle. Of yeah, you know, and it's interesting, too, because I think there is salt. something to be said for the fact that we routinized arms control. And within the U.S. system, we sequestered it from security policy. And I think this happened in a lot of countries in Europe as well, where when arms control started, you know, when you had your first INF inspections, you know, the first U.S.-Soviet bilateral inspections, you had missileers, you had missile manufacturers, you had intelligence, you had all these people coming together to become inspectors, which no one had done before. You know, except maybe uh, nuclear safeguards was uh, was a good model for that, but but really bilateral arms control inspections, and everything was so automatically and intrinsically infused with intelligence and intelligence collection and understanding what we saw. We even put the words national technical means in our treaties, including, by the way, the Vienna document. The idea that this is all interlinked, and yet over time became so routinized that I think we became very numb to it in the U.S. And I mean, I remember an OST policy. Going to, I was working on the Russia, Ukraine, and Eurasia desk, and I remember going to the desk officer for policy on Armenia and Azerbaijan and saying, hey, you know, we can do, because he was very concerned about what's happening here, here, and here, and I said, you know, we can do arms control inspections there. And he looked at me like, what? It just hadn't occurred to him. We had stopped telling ourselves the story of how useful arms control was, and I think we both know there were certain folks in the arms control community who were like, no, 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 we're different. We're separate from all of that. I think that became a problem. We stopped really interlinking this with what are the broader term goals here? How special is this information? Um, how much do we need it and how much do we use it? I think that's definitely the case. I mean, I think, you know, you, you talked about sort of what happened in New Start. Why are, why are we where we are now? I mean, people take these things for granted. I mean, they, they become they become something that you just come to expect and come to rely on and it's not special anymore. You know, for me, when I was going on an inspection to a Russian facility, it was like, oh, my God, I get to walk around a, a Russian nuclear facility. Uh, you know, I, I'd have colleagues or people you talk to. It's like, oh, we got to do another inspection in Russia. We got to you know, go to another base. You know, being an analyst of the Russian nuclear forces and, you know, getting thousands of notifications as to what they're doing and what they have. 
And then you go talk to someone who's, who's trying to do China analysis on their nuclear forces where they've got, they don't have that. You, you take all that for granted. And as a treaty goes on, you know, you have a big community, like you said, of people who work this issue and are very energized by it. And that just kind of slowly dwindles over time to sort of a small guild of, you know, 20 people who are doing all the work with the treaty. Yeah, it's amazing. I mean, uh, Open Skies is probably the best example of an agreement where we could provide all the NATO allies with all the imagery we wanted of Russian forces, of, of infrastructure, of everything. And yet, because the arms control community was so sequestered from any kind of broader security um, discussion, uh, it, it was completely invisible to the users of the imagery. And so it became really easy to withdraw. Anyway, that's my own little rant. I did want to open the conversation up a little bit more. I mean, we've talked about how hard China is, but the thing that strikes me when I'm having discussions with Americans a lot, when we talk about US-Russia, okay, US-Russia-China, maybe US-Russia and US-China. My thing is, all right, we want to deal with China. What are you doing about India? Because India's nuclear program is in large part reacting to the Chinese nuclear program. And then, of course, you have Pakistan. India sees Pakistan as an agent of China. Pakistan sees India as its primary threat. Then you've got North Korea. I mean, they're going to pass the UK and France with warhead totals soon. Um, you know what I mean? Like, how do we handle this? You know, so we have not, you know, a, a bilat um, dyad, not two dyads or a triad. We've got this this weird hub and spoke deterrence relationship and an arms race that's occurring on warheads that is just completely rewriting the book here. Do you think there are any kind of prospects for arms? control nuclear arms limits that goes beyond just this. It's about U.S. and Russia. It's about U.S. and China, you know, and India going, hey, uh, or the U.K. and France, you know, Russia saying, oh, they have to be included. How do we handle this? No, I think, you know, like you said, there is this tendency to get complex, right? To, to say there are all these things going on and shouldn't we be doing something about all of these things? Um, you know, the China dyad, the China India dyad is interesting, um, but to me, you know, maybe that is something that resolves itself if you can get the Chinese comfortable with something. Um, sort of join join us and the Russians in the pool, maybe not in the deep end, but maybe in the shallow end of the pool. And then you're looking at the Indians and saying, you know, come on in the water's fine. Like, see the Chinese are the Chinese are walking around in the shallow end with us. Um, you know, North Korea is its own its own issue. There's a lot of sort of interesting complications that are there. Um, you maybe covered some of those with Jeffrey Lewis when you when you did a, a previous discussion. But you know, do we want the North Korea problem solved or not? Do you know where are the Chinese on this? Where are the Russians on this? Given given the newfound friendship they have with the North Koreans, um, the P five is the P five as as you know. Right. You know, but again, can you get? the UK and France comfortable with what you, Russia and China are doing. I think, you know, may, maybe you can if you get a country like China on board. And again, I think it's this sort of simple information-based arms control um, that everyone realizes, you know, maybe this, is, maybe this isn't as bad as I thought. Maybe this isn't as un uncomfortable as I thought. It's a good place to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll finish the conversation with Mike Albertson. You're listening to the Arms Control Poser podcast with William Albrook. It really strikes me that, okay, let's say China agrees 1,500 warheads total 
you know, strategic and sub-strategic, how you, however you want to define that, just they're willing to stop at 1,500 warheads. Um, and then India says, okay, 1,500. And then Pakistan says, okay, 1,500. And then the UK and France, you know, we've already seen the UK increase its potential ceiling for warheads. So maybe they say, well, maybe 500. You know what I mean? And suddenly everyone starts edging up. There's questions in Congress. Don't we have to match Russia plus China? And I, I know that who was it, Blinken, um, or was it uh, Sullivan said, no, we don't need U.S. to be China plus Russia plus one. I, I know he said that, but that position has never held during the Cold War. The idea of parity is something that's so deeply entrenched in, 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 in the consciousness. So, I mean, don't we run the risk of having a very transparent nuclear arms race? I guess it's better than having a non-transparent nuclear arms race, but you know, um, it doesn't sound great. Right. No, I mean, I think, I think what you said about having a transparent arms race is as preferable to a non-transparent arms race. I think, like you said, competitive dynamics seem to be pushing everybody up, right? New start goes away and it doesn't get replaced. You know, Russia's going to th think the U S is doing things and, yeah. you know, it, it has the capacity to, to put more warheads on more hooks on, on its weapons. Um, you see all the talk in the U S now about how do we respond to both Russia and China? You know, do we, do we combine Russia and China together? Do we, do we change our strategy? Do we change our force posture? All, you know, the strategic posture commission just came out yesterday. There's, there's a lot here already about what, do, what do numbers look like? And like you said, the other, the other players might indeed fall suit. But you look out for sort of the next decade, what's the, what could you actually do? If everybody wants to compete, what can arms control actually do in this environment? And maybe it's just make it a little less bad. Yeah. It's not, it's not stop everybody from doing what they're doing. It's not force everybody to go in the absolute opposite, opposite direction. It's just, let's try to manage this as best we can by at least people being a little bit more open about what they're doing and why they're doing it and where they're going. I think you're pointing towards the right thing. The best thing we can really ask for arms control to do is not to solve the problems, but just to make them a little bit less acute. And then you get into the other issue, which is that Russia and China both appear to be going down the path where increasing risk is how they try to manage us, right? So the traditional model is, well, they don't want to ruin this arms race. And they don't want the risk of accidental nuclear war. But then you read Sergei Karaganov and he says, no, 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 we need to reintroduce the risk of accidental nuclear war so that the United States doesn't do things that the U.S. wants to do. We need to inhibit their behavior by increasing risk, which of course means that arms control is a, it, then when you go to Russia or China and say, we need arms control with you because we're worried. They say, oh, good, you're worried. What are you worried about? We're going to do that more. So what is there a is there a way out of that kind of conundrum? No, it's it's a good it's a good question because I think what's interesting is is you talk to U.S. people, right. and they feel like they have been very restrained, right? They haven't they haven't done everything they wanted to do or could do because they have been trying to address Russian and Chinese concerns. Whether whether that's true or not, I think is is sort of open to interpretation, but. You know, this this idea that the Russians and the Chinese have that, you know, the U.S. wants arms control and by therefore depriving of them or depriving them of something they value. You know, this is a hostage we can threaten. This is a hostage we can shoot and, and it will get us something in return. Um, 
I think you can definitely see the climate in Washington changing. You can see sort of the bipartisan consensus changing. And what's going to happen is that the U.S. is going to start to, to do things that, that Russia and China don't like as a result of Russia and China getting out of arms control agreements, refusing to participate in strategic stability talks, refusing to be involved in future arms control negotiations. Yeah. And that might actually be good in the long run. Um, you know, strategic stability has always been competitive. There's always been cooperative aspects, but there's been competitive aspects to it. Um, and there might be things that the U.S. has to do to sort of make a Russian and Chinese negotiating position look sort of worse and worse and worse. So they end up coming to the table because they don't like the way things are headed. They don't like the war. I don't think this is, you know, 1980s peace through strength, like redux playbook or anything, but I think this is kind of Pretty fast more hits. Let's go. Yeah. Yeah. I don't, I don't think this is, well, we'll just do the dual track decision again and we'll just like, yeah. you know, build a thousand of these. Um, but I think this idea of like, you gotta look a decade out, like where's, where's the yeah. program of record going? Where's Russia going? Where's China going? Where are all these other States going and say, how do we, how do we manage this? And how do we get to some point of equilibrium in the future where we can just say, stop, like you guys, you guys did this for a decade, didn't get you any advantage. Like, can we all come to our senses now and, and figure out how we're going to, but even this? to do that, if you talk to Jill Ruby or Frank Rose from NNSA, they would say, I can't help you. We're we're barely going to meet our target for pit refurbishment next year, and you know if you if if you are thinking about adding more systems, more warheads, where's this going to come from? So we would have to do things like change the program of record. Yeah, I think I think this is where you know these these limitations in the U.S. system become apparent. I think again this this idea that some people have that this is going to be sort of the 1970s, 1980s redux where the U.S. can do whatever it yeah. wants. And it's really just a question work. of like flipping a switch and, you know, you know, you know, peacemakers will start rolling off the assembly line or something. It's that's not the world in which we live in. And if you want to get to that world, you're going to have to do a lot of things in the next 10, 15, 20 years to, to get to that point. And is that really what you want to do. Yeah, yeah, it's it is kind of amazing. It's the the idea that Russia would need to see credible changes to our infrastructure, or lose all visibility on our, on our infrastructure altogether. Because quite frankly, if I'm a Russian, Congress and all of our processes are so sclerotic and so slow that I don't need an arms control agreement. I know how many warheads you have. I know how many you're gonna have. Any changes are going to be so loudly and publicly debated. I'm going to know everything. So China's just looking at us being like, well, you give us everything for free. Why in the world would we enter into an arms control agreement with you when, I, when we know literally everything about numbers, types, deployments, just by pecking up the New York Times? Yeah, it's, it's very strange um, because, like you said, there's so much open information. The Russians should be able to, you know, put the U.S. up against the wall and say you are, you know, six foot one and three quarters inches. And yet sometimes, as you know, the U.S. is 10 feet tall. Sometimes the U.S. is two feet tall. Like they underestimate our resolve in some cases. They overestimate our capabilities. You know, some analyst in, in yeah. Moscow says, well, I haven't seen anything on this particular weapon system that the Americans said was canceled, but I bet 
I bet they're still working on it. Like I, you know, I, we just, we just haven't found it yet. Yeah. And, and so, you know, you, you would think all these issues in the U S system would be apparent, but, but sometimes they're not. And, you know, if there is opacity, you know, it will lead to Russian and Chinese worst case assumptions, just like opacity by Moscow and Beijing are going to lead to worst case assumption on the, on the U S side. Well, that's what we have to do is we have to make it clear to China that their opacity is not increasing their security, that it's decreasing their security because we're going to make decisions based on worst case scenarios, which are going to harm their interests, which strikes me as well as if, for instance, we want, you know, we keep waving the, the magical wish wand at China regarding North Korea. But if we said to them, for instance, you know, whatever total you declare, we're going to add North Korea total to that. And that's what we're going to deal with. You know what I mean? Like if you, if you could impose penalty on Russia and or China for North Korea's program, would then they take, would they then take that program more seriously? Um, and, and, and that plus, as we were talking about changing infrastructure and actually reducing transparency and giving yourself the potential for a flexible buildup might be the tools necessary to engage in future. Yeah, I think that's right. I think, I think you, you have to figure out what this sort of basket of stuff looks like that that's going to incentivize some degree of arms control conversation in the future. And like you said, it's going to be complex. It's not just going to be the program of record. It's not going to be, well, if we just put Silicon end on, on one end of the scale, like now the sudden the equation completely changes for the Russians and the Chinese, it's going to be well, okay. so, a, a complex basket of stuff. I think we've gotten to a pretty good idea of where we are and what's going to need to happen in order to get to a future with arms control. But let's just say tomorrow I could put you in the National Security Council. You're the National Security Advisor, and you're meeting with you know, SecDef and SecState, and you're preparing to go give a recommendation to the President of the United States. If, if you had to do something regarding the nuclear weapons complex and or an arms control agreement and or engagement with China, what, what would be the one thing that you would want to push right now as we near the end of new start as we don't have any progress or even hope with China right now, what is it that you would recommend to the president of the United States to do right now that would put you in a better course within this whole basket of deterrence issues? I want, this is, this is kind of a big want, but like if I, if I was national security council person um, who was able to execute it, I would want a, a simple concrete proposal that I could put out in the public space to the Russians and the Chinese of what strategic arms control looks like. Yeah. Um, And it's, it's, that's the proposal. And this is something you've worked on, you know, with your DOD counterparts to say like, this is something you've worked on with your IC counterparts in terms of where the Russians and Chinese going. This is something you've worked on with your, you know, people on the Hill. So you're getting some Senate buy-in to say like, this is the proposal. And then you, you can go to allies, you can go to multilateral bodies, you can go to public expert space and be like, this is what we want. Yeah. Uh, Russia and China might reject it. Um, and what the U.S. puts out in a proposal should be something plausible, but yeah. not a, a, a sort of compromise proposal, right? It should be what the U.S. thinks is in its interest in terms of an arm control proposal. So when anyone asks, it's there it is. Like, l- let's talk about it. If Russia and China say no, anyone who asks, yeah. like, why is there no arms control? It's like, we have a proposal. Uh, and they said no. They said no. They haven't engaged on it. And we're not going to change our proposal. Um, yeah. And here's, here's Vladimir and uh, she's a uh, phone number. Yeah, give him a call. Give him a call. 
Cool. You're concerned about arms control. Take a trip to Moscow and Beijing. There's probably a direct flight you can take between those two capitals and, you know, ask them what their issue is with the proposal. And, you know, we're, we're interested in why they don't like it. Like, what what do they want in a proposal? What are the what are the details of their proposal? But it's always better. And, you know, Frank, Frank Rose, who I worked for at State, had had this great phrase, but sort of you can't you can't fight something with nothing. Right. You have to have a, a concrete something with which to talk about. So, you know, we, we've we have a U.S. You know, proposal that you know, we're open to negotiations. I, I, I guess I would take that one step further and say, here's here's what we want to negotiate. on. Yeah, this is you know, this is my mantra to everyone, everyone who asks, you know, what can we do in arms control? How do we get Russia and China into arms control? I say, you know, don't ask that question yet. Do you know what you want yet? Have you figured out what it is you want? And if you don't know what you want, then what the hell are you asking? And don't don't try to psych, psychoanalyze the Russians or Chinese. I don't need to guess what they want. I don't need the, that's not what no one needs that. They know what they want. They know their positions. If we don't know what we want, and 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 you know, I, I would even say we, it doesn't even have to be realistic. What's the ask here? What's the end state here? Not oh how you know oh should we give up missile defense? Should we give? Don't say that. Say what is it? If we if Russia and China said okay yeah let's talk. What's the proposal? And if you can't answer that, then you don't really want arms control. You're just nervous and you don't know what you want. Figure it out. Do the hard work. If you think you know what the rules should be, put that down. And as you said, if you've worked that with your allies, and if you've worked that with publics, and if you've wargamed that with track 1.5 and track 2, it'll be pretty good. And then if, if Russia or China wants to change things in there, okay, then you're in a negotiation. But until you've articulated that, we actually run the the, the risk of the worst scenario, which would be... I don't know if you remember the December 2021 Russian proposals to the US and to NATO for arms control. Those were horrible. And if we negotiated on that basis, we'd be in a lot of trouble. So if we, as long as we haven't articulated what we want, we're actually opening up a vulnerability. Right. I think, I think there's two things. And I think that's what you just said was a great analysis. I mean, one, there's the problem that the other person tables a concrete proposal and then you waste all of your time and energy responding to a terrible proposal and explaining why it's unworkable, then you look like the one who's stopping things while the other person, you know, gets to have a big propaganda victory about, you know, how, you know, how they want total nuclear disarmament and the Americans are just stymieing things and, you know, but there's also internal homework that has to take place, right? Um, Russian novel systems need to be in the next agreement. What? Like, what do you want to do with Russian novel systems? Are they so worrisome that you want to just ban them entirely and you're willing to sort of pay the price associated with forcing the other side to ban a system? Uh, or do you just want to see them? Do you want to limit them? Do, do you want, like, only, they can only have so many? Uh, Russian non-strategic nuclear warheads. We didn't care about them for a long time. N- now they're so deeply important to us that, like, they have to be in the next agreement. What do you want to do? Do you want me to cut them by two thirds? Do you want me to move them all to one bunker in a mountain in the Urals? Like, right. tell me, you know, can you, can they not have them on certain types of platforms? You know, tell me what you want. Um, you know, it's like, you know, telling, telling a person going off to, you know, buy a car or something like what, what kind of vehicle do you want? Like how much are you willing to spend? Like, does it have to have four wheels? Like, do you want it to fly? 
um, or, or a lawyer, like writing a, writing a will, like, what do you want the will to say? How do you want to divide things up amongst your, you know, sort of basic, basic guidance, basic homework, but you risk by not having something concrete out there that when all you're saying is like, we're open to arms control, that's just feeding the perception. Like you want it, like you want it and it's valuable. So if by Russia and China saying no, they can either thumb their nose at you or stop you from having something you yeah. want, or maybe have some leverage on you to, to, yeah. to get yep. it. From. No, you're absolutely right. I, it, 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 it's funny. Um, you know, the Chinese say, well, we have no first use, so do no first use. And it's like, oh, that doesn't mean anything. Or the Russians, they have a very specific ask on tactical nuclear weapons. Get rid of U.S. nuclear forces in Europe, tear up the NATO sharing arrangements, and, you know, and then we'll talk. They have, and I don't want to, and again, I think both of those are absurd requests, but we don't have any, we don't have any counter request, right? You know, what is it we specifically want from China? What is it we specifically want on Russian tactical nuclear weapons? And actually, this is why I was working with Miles Pomper. We did a report called Everything Counts, where we tried to think, okay, if we were going to limit them, what would it look like? And actually to do that homework. And, you know, it was really hard. And we had to compromise uh, even among ourselves to come up with good answers. But you know, I do think that's important work to do. And as long as you don't know what, as long as you don't know where you're going, it doesn't matter uh, how you get there. It doesn't matter how fast you go. Uh, we just don't know where we want to go. And you get audiences who just say, well, we want something. We want arms control, but they don't articulate that. And, and that's what's missing. Yeah, I think, and I know arms control negotiations don't work this simplistically. I know international policy doesn't work this simplistically, but when the Chinese say, we want you to sign up to a no first use proposal, is there not some diplomatic, agreed interagency way of saying, what will you give me for it? Right? If this is valuable to you, what will you give me? What, what I have some things that I want, like, let's, let's start setting up some sort of macro trades here. Um, you know, Russia, you say you're concerned about conventional prompt global strike, like, tell me more. Like, tell, like, what, what specifically are you concerned about? Um, and then sort of, what are you willing to, you know, what are you willing to give me? Um, I think the problem is, you know, right now you have sort of a long list of undefined Russian issues that they want addressed. You have these sort of very nebulous, flowery Chinese language proposals of what they want. And you have the China, and you have the Americans saying, we want our, you know, we're interested in arms control. Until you start to like define that fuzziness, like how are you going to get to an actual negotiation at the table where you're talking about trade space and frameworks and, you know, even before you're getting to like, what does the treaty language look like? Or what does the agreement language look like? Just the basic fuzzy outlines of the, the big building blocks in this, in well, this thing you're trying to make. I think I think we can leave it there. I think that's good. Uh, we haven't solved the issues, but I do think... Um, you know, from this conversation, it really sounds like uh, we do need to think about a, a future force structure that could be a lot larger and more responsive on the U.S. side. I think we have to look at what it is that we really want the rules of the road to be um, with the nuclear powers. Um, we've got homework to do, and so far we have not really been willing to do it. And uh, it's about time, even before we get to the table uh, with the Russians. I mean, you know, we tried strategic stability talks, but you know, with the war on Ukraine, with everything else, uh, they're still trying to hold us hostage. They're still trying to say, what will you give me just to come to strategic stability talks? It's just, 
uh, it doesn't seem to be any way out of this. Yeah, I think I think this. You know, we've had this formula for a long time, right? That we're we share the same concerns. Let's have a strategic stability dialogue where we outline the concerns we have. You know, the dialogue will lead to each side understanding the other, and then we will both decide that sort of there are concrete steps that need to be taken, and we'll take them together. That formula doesn't seem to have generated the concrete work that people or even gotten off the ground with the Chinese. So I think the need for sort of a different a different approach, like a different means of leverage to get people to the table so they start talking about concrete things. Is, All right, Mike. Well, right. thank you very much for the discussion. Uh, I've learned a couple things and uh, I'm glad we talked. Thank you, William. Now, thank you. When we come back for part two, we're going to talk a little bit about Mike's life and career. See you just in a second. No, thank you, William. This was great. I appreciate the opportunity. See you in just a second. All right, we're back for part two, where Michael Galen Albertson is going to tell me a little bit about his life how he's gotten to the place he has gotten to today. I mean, a truly uh, important and interesting career, but how did you get in- interested in arms control? Like what was your introduction to the topic itself? Is this something that you thought about during school or uh, did you come to it much later uh, through, you know, uh, an odd career path? How, how did you first come into arms control? I mean, I came into it through an odd career path. I, I had wanted to be a foreign service officer when I was in high school. Like I wanted to... Okay. I wanted to travel the world. I wanted to, to do things. I wanted to work for the U.S. government. Glamorous um, life of stamping passports in Ouagadougou. And, and then I learned more about what foreign officers officers did. And then I didn't pass the foreign service exam when I was, you know, an undergrad. And so oh, no. I, started, I started looking. Well, I was 21, so I can understand and had oh, no yeah. skills and abilities. That's so I can understand why they didn't, didn't need me at that particular mo- moment in time in 2004. Um, but you know, I got, I got a job as as an analyst working for the department of defense. Um, I was originally assigned to be a West Africa military analyst. And then a month before I started, they sent me a letter basically saying, we've done a reorganization of our analytic teams and you are now a, a Russian strategic nuclear forces analyst. And I didn't know what strategic meant. I thought strategic meant sort of like high level. I didn't know that, you know, it meant long range because, you know, I'm right undergrad and don't know any better. Uh, I started as an analyst um, doing Russian long range aviation. Um, over time, that sort of built into doing most of the Russian nuclear forces. I had a lot of had a lot of good mentors who had been analyst for 30 years who, who knew who knew Soviet stuff, who knew Russian stuff. But the government hadn't hired anybody during the 90s, right, to do to do Russia. They've been sort of downsizing the Russia shop. So it was me and a bunch of senior people and mountains of files, yeah. you know, 50 years, 60 years of accumulated files. And so I had a lot of time to read. And then 2009, 2010 comes around and the Obama administration comes in and they're doing a nuclear posture review and they're interested in um, you know, negotiate a new agreement. I had done some work associated with Start One. Um, found it to be kind of interesting because it was the way to see what you were what you were studying, the way to learn more about what you were studying. 
And then I got involved in the negotiations and found, you know, found the negotiations to be fascinating, found arms control to be fascinating. And it's fascinating because it has so many sides. I mean, it's got bureaucratic politics, it's got organizational dynamics, it's got human psychology, it's got, you know, Russian studies, it has sort of a far more technical piece in terms of verification, systems analysis, it ties in so much, but really, what was interesting to me was, you know, it's, it's a team, it's a team sport. It's not something you do by yourself. It's something you have to, you have to work and compromise with and compromise internally and compromise with the Russians. And so <laughs> I did that at the time, basically thinking it was kind of a one-off, one-off thing. That was fun. This is great. I'll go back to my, my desk job and the senior DOD official in the negotiation, Ted Warner said, pulled me aside towards in the negotiations and said, you know, come work for me. Like, I I like you, you you do good work, like come, come work for me. And he basically took me under his wing for the next two years. And I I worked with him in OSD policy, um, you know, doing new start, but also thinking about strategic stability, about learning how the Pentagon works, about, you know, thinking about space and cyber and emerging technologies. And, you know, then again, sort of that, that was wrapping up and I thought I was going to go back to my, my old job and, but then that led to the National Security Council to be a Russia director in 2013, 2014. And then I got approached by State Department. I got approached by Frank Rose and Anita Freed, who said, you know, we need we need some mid-level people working in, in the Arms Control Verification Compliance Bureau. Like, come, come and be one of these mid-career people who has some experience and can sort of train the next generation. So I did that for four, you know, and again, it's sort of arms control just sort of took me in a in an interesting direction and sort of right, right place, right time. And just a tremendous set of mentors along the way. Right. I, I had, I had the opportunity um, just to, to sort of learn from this sort of golden generation of us arms controllers who'd spent 30 years doing it, loved it. Saw it, so saw it as important. And so I guess on the, you know, on the one hand, hearing your story, um, it sounds like you took the time to really do a deep dive on Russian systems when you had when you had the time yourself, you actually did a lot of reading and a lot of background. That's certainly something I've had the opportunity to do. Certainly at NATO, going through the NATO archives and really learning the history was a really important part in my career. Um, but the other aspect that it sounds like you've had is the exposure to these people who were really good mentors. Uh, can you? Can you talk a little bit, like if you were to give someone advice, okay, great. How do I get a really good mentor? How do I, how do I find these people and how are they going to recognize something in me? You know what I mean? How do you put yourself in the way of a really good mentor? Because it sounds like you've had some really great ones through your career. Yeah. I, I mean, the advice I give to people is sort of the, the mentor mentee relationship, right? Any, any senior junior relationship is one of sort of mutual interest, right? Mutual self-interest and in, in give and take. I think there is always a sense that, you know, the mentor the mentor should provide things, right? The, the mentor will teach me, the mentor will give me recommendation letters, the mentor will help my career advancement. You have to do things for the mentor in a lot of cases to show why you are worth this investment of their very limited time in a lot of cases. Um, in, in some, you know, in some senses, you know, I, I was able to develop relationships with mentors because I was really interested in what they did. Like I was able to, you know, and I was not blowing smoke. I was I was legitimately interested in like, I just want to sit down with you and 
hear from you. I, I have a hard question. Can you please like help me understand it? I'm, I'm new. You're, you're, you're smart. Like, tell, tell me about this. In other cases, it was sort of legitimately demonstrating value to them that I could provide. It's they needed information. I, I could come and brief them whenever they needed it. Like I was, I was there to come brief them. Um, or, you know, you needed a cable on a negotiation knocked out in two hours and I could take a three hour meeting and write a cable for you in two hours. Um, and it would be accurate and it would be well-written and it would be good. And, you know, that saves them time editing and things like that. So it's, it's really sort of a, a two way street. And what you learn is that all of these senior people who, you know, you hold up on a pedestal to some extent when you're a junior person, they're just people, right? Like they're very isolated. They have fears. They need someone they can trust. They need someone they can unwind with. They need someone they can bat ideas off of. And, you know, you can, you can be that person when you establish a good enough relationship with, with, with the mentor. If there's a final question here, if there's one piece of advice you could give yourself, if you could go back in time to any point during your career and give yourself some really solid advice that would help you um, based on what you know now that you just didn't know then, what would it be? I would say it's, you know, have, have the courage to, to move around, have the courage to move around in sort of a smart way. Um, the, the reason I am where I am now is because, you know, with arms control, it's like I saw arms control from different perspectives, working it in, in slightly different ways. So, there's not a unitary vision of arms control. It's like, I can see it from the DOD side. I can see it from the state side. I can see it from the technical side. Um, I can see it from the Russian side, right? Because I've worked in these, in these different places in these different organizations. There is a sense, you know, when you get to, when you get to Washington, DC, when you start your career of, I don't want to screw up. I don't want to take the wrong job. Mm. Um, I don't, you know, I, and when, once I get a job in the government, like I, I can't move anywhere else because, you know, this is, this is the one, the one place where I have a home, uh, you know, move, move around. If you work at state, go, go work in the Pentagon for a little bit. If you work in the Pentagon, like take a rotation to the state department or, or get a job in the state department for a little bit of time, um, you know, get out of government, work in a think tank and then come back into government. Like the, the people who have the best views are actually these people who've done a bit of a multidisciplinary look at a particular topic and can see it from, from different ways. But that takes a little bit of courage. It takes a little bit of risk. Um, it takes, you know, you have to go through these learning curves and that, that are sometimes difficult. You have to um, learn new organizational cultures and new organizational ways of doing things, but it, it, it just makes you more valuable at the end of the day because you have a bit more empathy and a bit more perspective. That's fantastic. I think that'll do for today. Thank you to Mike Albertson for being with us for a really fantastic talk. And uh, I really enjoyed especially hearing about that career. That's, that's really good. And I think that's excellent advice for the future. Thank you very much, Mike. Thank you, William. This was tremendous. Appreciate you giving me the opportunity to do it. And that's a wrap. Thanks once again to Mike Albertson. Thank you to the EU Nonproliferation Discernment Consortium for funding this project. Thanks to Bobby Freeman for the excellent music. This has been William Alberk on the Arms Control Poser Podcast. I repeat again. I repeat again. I repeat again.
I repeat again. I repeat again.